You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On this episode, we're going to be talking about an autopsy report just released by Jacobin Magazine, which assesses the strength of their strategy for, you know, winning the support of the masses. And we're going to use this opportunity to play back for you some of the criticisms that we have voiced about Jacobin Magazine's politics over the past few years. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. Following the Republican Party's defeat in the 2012 presidential election, a black guy named Barack Hussein Obama was elected to serve a second term. The Republicans wanted to figure out what they had done wrong. The result of their investigation became known as the, quote, autopsy report. It concluded that the Republicans needed a softer tone and that they needed to reach out to women, African-Americans, Asian, Hispanic, and gay voters. Of course, what actually happened was the opposite. Owing to the proto-fascist proclivities of its hardcore base, the party went full Trump. And instead of any new autopsy following Trump's defeat in last year's election, the Republicans' current political strategy is voter suppression, election nullification, and fascist insurrection. Be that as it may, Jacobin Magazine released its own autopsy report a few weeks ago, based on an opinion survey it and others conducted. Uh, Some of Jacobin's autopsy report is no surprise at all. There's a lot of bashing of, quote, woke, close quote, politics, as if it weren't obvious already that a lot of white Americans prefer being comatose to being woke when it comes to race. But other things in the autopsy report must come as a shock to the Jacobin crowd. Uh, On his electoralvote.com website, Andrew Tannenbaum, a.k.a. the Vote Master, summarized one key takeaway from the survey this way, quote, There was no evidence at all that people wanted democratic socialists or their policies. There is plenty to digest here, but free college isn't part of it. Close quote. And it's worth quoting at some length another key takeaway, keeping in mind that Jacobin went all in to elect Bernie Sanders in 2020. On page 14 of their autopsy report, they now say, quote, Working class non-voters are not automatic progressives. Progressives in the Democratic Party often assume that low-propensity voters are natural allies. Bernie Sanders made increased turnout among low-propensity voters a central feature of his electoral strategy. Our experimental results provide little evidence to support Sanders' theory. It is unlikely that low-propensity voters fail to vote because they don't see their progressive views reflected in the political platforms of mainstream Democratic candidates. And the quote continues, a related argument on the left is that many otherwise progressive voters are so disillusioned with the Democratic Party, seeing it as tied to the interests of corporate executives and the super rich, that they refuse to vote for its candidates. We find little evidence to support the theory that working class voters are turned off by Democratic politicians, or that they would be more likely to vote for progressive candidates who rhetorically distanced themselves from the Democratic Party. 
Our reaction to the Jacobin autopsy report is threefold. First, we wonder whether they will listen to their own advice, or whether they will ignore it like the Republican Party ignored its own 2013 autopsy report. Second, unless the Jacobin autopsy report proves to be the first step toward a fundamental rethinking of its politics, uh, it is too little too late. Much too little, much too late. Uh, the report certainly doesn't call for what is desperately needed at this moment of crisis, prioritizing the struggle against Trumpism and the far right, embracing a conception of the left that doesn't pander to white nationalism, but stands for freedom and human rights for all. A third, our reaction is that we could have told them so. Well, actually, we have told them so. Uh, there's no need for us to reinvent the wheel now. Uh, instead, we can simply share with you some blasts from the past, a selection of many things we've already discussed on Radio Free Humanity, beginning with our very first episode, things that told them so. And so that's what we're going to do in this episode. We're going to roll some tape from some previous episodes, um, just some choice selections of some of the criticisms we've made of the Jacobin Party line over the past couple years. First, here are some selections from our very first episode. Obama Trump voters, uh, which aired on September 26, 2019. The anti-neoliberal left people view the Obama Trump voters as a key constituency right. that they can potentially capture and win away from Trump. Because if the narrative that they put forward were correct, that these people were rebelling against neoliberalism and not embracing racism and xenophobia and misogyny, if, if that were correct, then these people were, would be there to line up instead behind uh, the social democratic programs and so forth of the anti-neoliberal left. And uh, this goes along with um, the, the, the basic political problem that these people have had for decades upon decades. They, they don't have a mass base. Mm-hmm. They want to get a mass base, and they don't have much in common with the great mass of the American people. Um, so they think that they can buy off these people with social programs, you know, and, yeah. and economic incentives. And this is the whole uh, trope about what's the matter with Kansas and so forth. You know, why are people not voting their so-called economic interests? Right. Why are they voting for the Republicans? Why are they, you know, lining up behind Trump? And there's concerted efforts again and again to try to win over these people you have nothing in common with by giving them stuff. Uh, and they're at it again. Yeah. And I feel like every day I hear someone say, you know, it's not enough to be against Trump. We have to be for something with the assumption that, um, you know, opposing authoritarianism and proto-fascism is not a something in and of itself, but one has to have something else. And by which they always seem to mean some sort of uh, social democratic economic program. Yeah, well, as you said to me, it was kind of enlightening in its simplicity. You know, the left does need to stand for something. But what it needs to stand for is not necessarily uh, a social democratic economic program. Mm -hmm. 
so I've seen a lot of studies, and I think there are probably dozens of them, uh, academic studies, arguing that uh, Trump voters were not motivated by anti-neoliberal sentiment, by economic hardship, but instead were motivated by racism, authoritarianism, sexism, nativism. So is the persistence of this anti-neoliberal Trump voter myth merely due to the fact that people just haven't seen these studies? It might well be that they're not familiar with the academic studies, but that doesn't really explain or excuse persistence of a narrative yeah. that the Obama-Trump voter is in rebellion against neoliberalism, despite all of the evidence. Why are these people not familiar with the evidence if they are indeed not familiar with the evidence? Are they just looking the other way? Why are they not concerned to find out what the real deal is? Were economic factors at all responsible in any way for voters flipping from Obama to Trump? Well, yes, you, 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 you get this economic anxiety and all of these attitudes uh, and policy views that people will state, but this is not the line that has traditionally come from the anti-neoliberal left, which is that, okay, we used to have a kinder, gentler capitalism, and then the evil neoliberals come along in the 70s or 80s, you know, Margaret Thatcher and uh, Reagan, and they impose this harsh, you know, austerity, market-driven kind of capitalism, and it, you know, pummels the working class, and their wages stagnate, and globalization and financialization take their jobs away, and but that's the anti-neoliberal narrative: is that these people's objective economic circumstances have either worsened or not improved in three, four decades. Okay, and yeah. that that's why they flipped to Trump. Okay, there's no evidence of that. Okay, so what does this say about political strategy? Can we woo away Obama-Trump voters with positive economic proposals? I don't think so. Um, and that's partly on the basis of, you know, the statistical analysis that I've done, but it's largely on the basis of other things as well. For instance, every opinion poll shows that no matter what happens, Trump support doesn't fall. You know, so the opinion polls don't move. The Republicans got uh, 45% in the midterm elections uh, for the House. Uh, Trump won 46% in, in, of the popular vote in 2016. These things are not moving. Um, these numbers and the attitudes of by far the largest share of the population pretty well fixed. But I think it's more than that. You have to not be so economic determinist in your thinking. Not, I don't mean you. I mean one. Yeah. Uh, and think that what drives people is these pocketbook issues alone. Uh, that's convenient for people who are trying to win over a mass base to their political orientation and they want their own political power for their own organizations or their counter-hegemonic project or whatever it is. You know, they, want, they desperately need and want a mass base and they, they need the prospect of a mass base to recruit followers. Yes, we can win this. So knowing that the they have no connection to the great mass of the American people themselves. They think that they can buy them off with goodies. Yeah. 
And they, so they, they want to believe and they want their followers to believe that these people can be bought off with goodies and that that's all that matters to them because these are, you know, stupid people, you know, couch potatoes and, and fly over country and they have no minds and all they have is, is, is mouths and, you know, they sit in front of the TV. And that's that's the, the, the view of people. A lot of the left has. Yeah. So one needs to appreciate not only that these economic appeals don't work, but to understand that Trump is giving his base, including, you know, what seems to be a large, large share of the Obama Trump voters, he's giving them what they want. Yeah. Okay. There were people who voted for Obama when race was not a salient election issue and they many flipped to Trump and every horror inflicted upon immigrants, refugees, the family separations, the deplorable conditions in the concentration camps, the Charlottesville massacre, the, the, the massacre in, 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 in Pittsburgh, all of this again and again and again, nothing moves the pro-Trump voters. Yeah. And you know, it's being hypothesized, and I think it needs to be taken seriously, uh, that the cruelty is the point. This is what these people are attracted to. Yeah. I'm not saying everybody, but, but one has to take into consideration that there is, among a lot of the population, an appeal of all of this. Proto-fascism has not majority appeal in this country, but mass appeal and that has been the case for decades upon decades upon decades, well prior to Trump, well prior to neoliberalism. Yeah. Um, I just read about um, a Frankfurt School study. Uh, this was probably conducted by uh, Theodore Adorno or something. This was in uh, the mid-1940s. And it was estimated that uh, about 30% of the uh, U.S. population had fascist proclivities at the time. Hmm. That's, in the, that's in the midst of World War II, yeah, right? Right. Um, On episode four of this podcast, which was aired back in November of 2019, uh, the episode was called Episode Four, Green New Deal, interview with Brendan Cooney. That's me. In the current events segment, we discussed a Jacobin Magazine article by Paul Heidemann, on uh, white working class Trump voters, uh, which didn't quite promise, but came close to promising that a Democratic Party committed to economic populism would win many of these voters back. Here is that segment. Today in the current events section of the podcast, we're going to be talking about a piece by Paul Heidemann in Jacobin Magazine entitled, What Liberals Miss About Trump Country. The blurb summarizes the piece saying, Liberal pundits look at Trump voters and see a monolithic mass of reactionary resentment. But class matters. Poor Republicans actually tend to hold progressive views on the economy. Heidemann goes on to argue that liberal pundits have a unrealistic picture of the Trump base as monolithically reactionary, but actually that in reality, um, poor Republicans ha tend to have more progressive views on supporting social programs that might reduce inequality and other sorts of social programs. You know, when I first read this piece, my takeaway is that Heidemann is putting forth 
the kind of argument you often might see in Jacobin that by uh, appealing to Trump voters with social democratic programs, uh, we might actually peel off some Trump voters and win the election in 2020. Oh, gee, nobody in Jacobin would ever say such a crazy thing like that, would they? <laughs> right. So you could see how, because I see this is sort of the party line often in Jacobin, I, I assumed that was what the argument was making. But after we briefly talked about it, you pointed out that he actually doesn't come out and make that argument. Right. There is a lot less to this piece than meets the eye. Yeah, so we talked about it briefly. You sort of pointed out to me that, that he doesn't actually make that argument explicitly. So what exactly is he saying? Well, he says a number of things. Uh, first of all, he bashes the liberal pundits uh, without without mentioning that he's also bashing the, the social science research on which the punditry relies. Um, and... The, the, the bashing is basically the uh, supposed attempt that they make to portray uh, Republicans and Trump voters as a monolith, uh, you know, an impenetrable block. So that gets to the, the issue that you're uh, getting at. You know, he says, oh, they portray them as an impenetrable block. He doesn't quite say, though, they're not really an impenetrable block, but there are continual suggestions in that um direction um and he makes a lot of in my view way too much of the fact that there are differences according to income level between uh, republican voters essentially republican voters in other words lower income republican voters have different less reactionary uh economic policy views on the whole than more well-to-do uh republican voters uh, that's the, um, the the fact underlying what he describes in, I, I believe, excessive ter- terms. I, I wrote down some of the, the, the adjectives that he uses to describe this difference in economic policy views within the set of Republican voters. Contradictions, fractures, it's fractious. Uh, they're deeply divided. Uh, there are schisms, fissures, fault lines, chasms. That, that's, a, that's a bit much when, when all, all we're, we're seeing is a difference in policy views without any real indication that these differences in policy views are driving anything. They, they might be there and, and not that important uh, in terms of, let's say, voting behavior. They might be there and important to voting behavior as a side effect or a consequence of, of other things. Right. Well, when you watch a Trump rally, it seems that there's no internal division at all within the Trump base. It's like a cult of personality, and either you're with Trump or you're not with Trump, and other issues don't really matter at all. Right. Um, and in, in this piece by Heidemann, um, he disregards what I believe the key point is that he's pointing to, which is the following. He's, uh, fairly late in the piece, he writes, uh, he's uh, characterizing a certain study, um, talking about, uh, well, I'll just read it. He says, while Democrats differ between rich and poor on social issues and are united on economics, Republicans are united on social issues and divided on economics with poor Republicans endorsing significantly more progressive economic policies than rich Republicans. Okay, so what this suggests to me is that 
what is holding the Trumpite base and holding the Republicans together is unity on social issues. And that trumps differences with respect to economic matters. Okay, so it, it, it's right there. Despite these differences on economic matters, they are united. And on, on what basis are they united? Social issues. So it, it's right there in this piece if one chooses to uh, pay attention to it. Right. And, and it seems ridiculous to assert that just because some Republicans might support, say, Social Security or Medicare, that that means they're going to be receptive to someone like Bernie Sanders, who is portrayed as a radical socialist. In general, you know, your Republican voters, uh, your so-called, you know, Republican white working class voters and so forth, they're, they're, they're not in favor of uh, welfare policies. Um, okay, but there is very strong support among them for Social Security and Medicare. Uh, in fact, more than in the general population. Okay, so the, the, they make it. They make a difference, and the difference comes down to what is, in their view, assistance to those who are deserving versus assistance to those who are not deserving. And a good deal of the hatred of the political class, the elites, has to do with this idea that, you know, these elites are getting their power by um, sucking up to, you know, and, and, and doing the bidding of those who are not deserving. And of course, that has a tremendous amount of racial baggage going along with it and, you know, immigrants coming in and, and supposedly living high on the hog and all, all, all of that. Um, and it's, it's not just, you know, answers to survey questions. Uh, the, a sociologist, Arlie uh, Russell Hochschild, wrote a book called Strangers in Their Own Land, you know, based on very deep research. You know, she was in Louisiana and she finally said, look, here, I'll tell you a story, you know, about what I think you're saying. And it was like people cutting in line. You know, we've waited in line for ours. We're not getting it. And here we see these people cutting in line and we don't like it. And they go, yeah, this is what we're saying. So there, 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 there are differences that are very pronounced, um, which are based on this notion of deservingness and not. And, and that's very, very much tied to, to, to race. Andrew, you wrote a book review called The Baselessness of Trump's Base, which is up on the MHI website. And it's a book review of the book called Identity Crisis by John Sides, Lynn Vavrick, and Michael Tesler. And you talk about an experiment they do that kind of illustrates this concept. This was done in, this experiment was done in December uh, 2016, so a month after the election. Um, Half of the respondents, I'm quoting from the book, half of the respondents were asked whether they agreed or disagreed with a racially loaded statement. The statement is over the past few years, blacks have gotten less than they, less than they deserve. The other half was given the same statement, except that instead of blacks, it said average Americans. Okay, and that, uh, they say, average Americans uh, has been shown by research to be implicitly synonymous, when people hear it, with being white. Um, Almost two-thirds of Trump voters said that average Americans were not getting what they deserve, but only 12% said this about blacks. Among Clinton voters, there was no such disparity. You know, almost two-thirds, 60-something percent versus 12% of Trump voters saying blacks are not 
getting what they deserve. They don't agree that blacks are not getting what they deserve, but they say to almost two-thirds of them, average Americans are not getting what they deserve. Among Clinton voters, the share who say average Americans and blacks not getting what they deserve, pretty similar amounts. So there really is um, a very strong racialized element to this notion of deservingness. Uh, and this is, this is the, the terms in which a lot of people think. Um, but, but I want to make a comment on, on, on another um, point. We, we've made it, but, but I, w- I want to make sure that this, this gets through. Um, in, the, in the last section of uh, Heidemann's uh, article, um, he says, The homogenization of rural white America in the portraits of liberal observers obscures all of this. Instead, readers are told again and again that nothing can shake Trump voters' faith in him, that racism and xenophobia drive everything about their politics, and that they will happily deprive themselves of opportunity if it means they can deprive others as well. What one is expecting is that he will present some argument, some evidence that it's not that way. Okay, But, but there, isn't, there isn't a bit of that in this entire article. Okay, what is the evi- What is the evidence? What is the evidence that that something, especially some economic policy stuff, can shake Trump voters' faith in him? What What, what is the evidence that their politics is not driven by racism and, and xenophobia? Uh, what, what 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 Where is the evidence that the deprivation of others is not key to 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 what to what they're about? Okay, he doesn't present any of that. Well, it seems like Jacobin's in a hard place because they've been pushing this line that social democratic politics are going to um, defeat the Republicans, but the social science research seems to be pretty consistent in countering uh, that, and so they've sort of been left with this approach. This this article really represents the swan song of this, you know, economic distress uh, brought about by neoliberalism pummeling the working class is what uh, caused Trump to become president. Uh, you know, that narrative has taken blow after blow, um, both because of the social science research that's been done to show what the motivations of Trump voters are, and because, um, you know, you see Trump voters are certainly not getting any economic benefits from this administration, uh, and yet his base sticks with him through thick and thin. That narrative is in tatters, and and this is, is is what one can salvage. This article gives you what you can salvage uh, without actually lying. Um, and it, it, you know it looks good, and it, it it can induce this idea that oh yeah, you know if the, the the Democratic Party were to move into you know a strong social democratic direction, it could pull a substantial, at least substantial part of Trump's base away from him. You know, you get that impression. Every, everything seems to be driving you to m- draw those inferences. But, but to his credit, the, the author does not go there. He, he does not actually say that. The question is, what is he saying in the end? Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. 
Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world we intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. After Bernie Sanders lost the race for the Democratic Party nomination, we had a current events segment on that topic in episode 13. The Tanky Craze Part 2, which was released on March 13, 2020. Here's what we said about the Sandernista electoral strategy, both the official line about what the strategy was and the actual behind-the-scenes strategy. And if the Sanders crowd wants to be serious about their politics, they're going to have to do some real rethinking about some of the assumptions behind their strategies and not just say, oh, don't mourn, organize, and let's just do it again, or the next time we'll win. You know, the, the whole uh, argument that they were making regarding the general election electability of Sanders uh, was that, you know, Bernie is, is just like this, you know, transformational candidate, and we're going to bring to the polls all of the 
these disaffected people who never vote totally energize young people, and that will make up for whatever you know. Never Trump votes, we we lose, and you know, right wing Democratic votes we lose will more than make up for in terms of this new voting population and energy among young people. What the, the, the this set of primaries uh, thus far has shown is it's just not happening. Um, even in the Democratic primaries, Bernie Sanders is not drawing, you know, massive numbers of new voters, massive numbers of, of young people. He's doing very well percentage-wise, but in terms of turnout, the, the numbers just aren't there. Uh, and the other, the other thing that I didn't realize, uh, you know, you were saying a moment ago about a very divided Democratic field, this and that and the other thing, is that the Sanders campaign, their whole strategy from the get-go has been that he can win in a very divided field. You know, they they were thinking they were thinking, you know, if we get ourselves 30% of the vote, we can win with it. we have a plurality going into the convention and then God knows what happens, we're well organized, you know, we can win that way. 30% can win it if the other, you know, 70% is divided among four or five candidates. If it's divided among one candidate, <laughs> you know, you lose. The perspective of pandering to the white nationalist Trumpite base is bound up with the perspective of relegating black masses to the back of the bus. On May 25, 2020, George Floyd was murdered. That same day, the Black Lives Matter wave of protest erupted. And that same day, Jacobin published a piece by Dustin Guastella entitled, We Need a Class War, Not a Culture War. Here are some excerpts of what we said in response in our July 3, 2020 episode consigned to the Jacko dustbin of history. So the Sandernistas, the DSA, and the Jacobinites preached a winning strategy. Avoid the culture war, stick to redistributionist programs like health care and college tuition, and the left, as they called themselves, will build a mass base and take over the Democratic Party. But voters roundly rejected that approach, routing Sanders and sending a clear message that defeating Trump is more important. And then the largest radical uprising of a generation, the Black Lives Matter movement, a movement that has nothing to do with democratic socialist redistributionism and everything to do about America's racist culture, took center stage. How did the Jacobinites and Sandinistas make such mistakes in their thinking? Will they learn from these mistakes? The pivotal moments of forward movement in the U.S. have always been those moments when white working people took their lead from the black masses and coalesced with them. And this perspective in which the struggle against racism is seen at the forefront of radical movement, that really stands in stark contrast with this Jacobin version, which sees racial justice as a future byproduct of a benevolent redistributionist state. So let's get into this. What is the Jacobin line on race and, and class? Uh, you know, Now that the uprisings are happening, we're seeing them try to say that all this stuff conforms to their perspectives. But in reality, uh, Jacobin and the Sandernistas have been pushing a colorblind, class-based, economistic orientation for many years. Uh, certainly. Uh, and we're going to talk about a, a piece uh, in a moment that came out in Jacobin uh, on May 25 called We Need a Class War, Not a Culture War. 
and May 25, the day that this line was repeated for the umpteenth time, was of course the day that um, George Floyd was murdered and the wave of protests began. So on June 19th, um, the New York Times had this great article, I thought, called Bernie Sanders Predicted Revolution, Just Not This One. And the author, Sidney Ember, wrote that, quote, Sanders described the protest as a validation of his theory of social change. And she has this quote from Sanders where he says, quote, what I've said for a very long time is that real change is never going to come from the top on down. It's always from the bottom up. Um, but of course, that's, that's a very <laughs> abstract defense <laughs> of a, a way of getting around the fact that he didn't call this one at all. And she notes um, quite correctly that, quote, in reality, his campaign avoided discussing race and culture in favor of emphasizing inequality and social democratic proposals. And she goes on to give some examples of, you know, speaking events, even like forums on race where he completely avoided talking about race and racism and just always pivoted to his mantra, which was the 1% universal health care, free college, all those things. She says, quote, Sanders supporters say that racial justice was a central part of his campaign, but this is always couched in terms of how economic proposals would decrease inequality. Uh, I think that's completely accurate. Um, that's the only way that they're comfortable talking about race and racism um, is through social democratic proposals that will decrease inequality. What these people are concerned about because they're concerned about political power, their own political power, and organization building and party building. The reason they move in this colorblind and economistic direction is they're, they're concerned to forge unity. And I agree with that concern to forge unity, but they're going about it in the absolutely opposite way that they should. The need for unity is no justification for this colorblind orientation that sweeps racial divisions and racial oppression under the rug. Okay, you're only going to get a fake unity if you sweep that under the rug, you know, and paper over it. Uh, there's a need for genuine unity among working people in a situation where they are disunited because of racism and white supremacy. And so that's the need for unity is precisely why we have to directly confront racial divisions and racial oppression and prioritize the fight against them. Okay? Look. There are a few reasons why they believe that this working class unity is possible just on the basis of these abstract social democratic economic pro programs. I mean, one thing to be heard a lot of after Trump's 2016 victory was this theory that his base was really motivated to, to vote for him by his anti-neoliberal rhetoric and these promises of, you know, uh, tearing apart f free trade agreements and bringing jobs back to industrial areas and, st and such. Um, and these, this sort of analysis really downplayed the appeal of misogyny and racism and white nationalism and authoritarianism amongst Trump's base and um, it ignored all of that appeal and just try to explain his appeal through these economic things. And, and, and we really had some people coming out and saying, like, this was a vote against neoliberalism and that this was an opening for the left because the left can now move on these people. Yeah, it, um, it was even characterized among the anti-neoliberal left as a working class uprising against neoliberalism. Yeah. <clears throat> Trump's yeah. election. Four years later, I don't know how many of these people are still making this argument, but we definitely heard a lot of it four years ago. 
The other piece of evidence that they use that supposedly confirms this economistic worldview is that they, they, they claim that their platforms and positions do well in public opinion polls, that there's wide support for them. But the polls are always very abstract. You know, they say they ask some random people in Kansas if they like if they want free health care without any kind of contextualization, like you know who's going to pay for it and how much is it going to cost. Uh, and then they, they claim that this is evidence that there's widespread support for democratic socialism without any real understanding or discussion of how voting behavior is formed in this country, the sort of deep tribalism that American politics has become, uh, and the real role of racism and misogyny and authoritarianism informing a lot of people's overriding political identities and, and controlling their voting behavior. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, they, they continually trot out this talking point, that their programs are popular. I mean, it, even at the moment when, like, Bernie Sanders is, you know, getting his ass kicked in Super Tuesday, the Jacobinites say, oh, this was maybe not a victory for Bernie Sanders, but this was a victory for socialism. You know, people were voting for that, right? Because uh, God knows what, you know, some, some exit polls or, or something, again, showed that, uh, you know, in the abstract, when you don't talk about the cost, and who pays for the programs. Yeah, people like these programs. So they, 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 they really think that this is strong evidence that they're on the right track, that they do have the opportunity to win the allegiance of a mass base with these social democratic programs. But it's really their weakest point. You know, as evidence, it's incredibly weak. You got millions and millions of Trump supporters who like these programs in the abstract. Okay, but when you talk about the depth of their support, what they thrill to is chance of lock her up, you know, and what they thrill to is venomous, venomous, racist, white nationalist tirades and, and, you know, promises and actions from Trump that are just absolutely horrendous, okay? That's what they really care about, uh, and that's what they voted for. So the fact that they support Trump so fervently, even at the same time as saying they like the social democratic programs, that should have been sufficient to convince even the anti-neoliberal so-called left that the economic issues that are of utmost concern to them aren't the be-all and end-all in the minds of the American voters. We, we, we mentioned this before, but I, th I think there's a real mental block that is not going to allow a lot of these DSA Jacob Jacobinites to understand the real failure that, they're, that, that they've faced with here and to honestly engage with sober senses um, with, with what's going on in the country and to question their point of view. Uh, I think part of it is just because they see themselves as the only left, or at least the only real left engaged in practical politics. They dismiss other types of leftist politics as abstract or ultra-leftist, but as not being um, something that has any purchase on real political events. Um, and because of this, they, they really are not good at learning from their mistakes. You know, if the choice is between uh, uh, a politics with a lot of errors in it and no practical politics at all, then maybe it's just best, in their view, to just keep repeating the same error-ridden politics. Um, you know, so there's this built-in motivation to avoid understanding their own defeats um, or to question the framework of their worldview. Um, you know, they often 
f frame their perspective as the socialist perspective or this is what leftists think um, in a way that just uh, cancels out any kind of critical thinking um you know, don't and, think organize yeah don't think or yeah don't think organize <laughs> i like that um another and, bumper sticker and they portray their own defeats as just an and and, and and they portray their own defeats as just a matter of insufficient power of being overwhelmed by an adversary like this piece uh that just came out a few days ago by dustin guastella in jacobin where he said simply put we lost for reasons any great athlete might lose a much anticipated championship match our opponents proved to be stronger and with analysis an analysis like that you never have to take responsibility for your own defeats and you never learn anything and don't think organize yeah and don't think organize and now that they're confronted with this george floyd protest movement they're trying to manipulate that to fit into their pre-existing worldview instead of trying to think about what they got wrong you know they're trying to say that the protests are protests against neoliberalism and that defund the police means defund the police and fund the green new deal uh and to say that like you know problems of police brutality are the result of like neoliberal um investment in policing in order to distract from the inequalities of neoliberalism so so there's a complete there's a lot of really far-fetched attempts to make this fit into their pre-existing beliefs and no real honest attempt to to actually look critically at themselves hey that's all the time we have for this episode of radio free humanity if you like the podcast please do stop by marxisthumanistinitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others as always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies. 